Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Benjamin R. Lewick Leadership Podcast, where we believe everyone deserves exceptional leadership. Benjamin brings more than 25 years of leadership and team development experience to the table as he sits down to chat with other seasoned industry leaders and talk through real workplace issues. In each episode, Benjamin identifies action steps that you can start using right away as a leader to address the things that affect personnel, productivity, and profitability. Join us in today's episode as we explore practical and tactical ways that you can create a workplace environment that increases revenue, productivity, and motivation while decreasing stress and personnel churn. Are you ready? Exceptional leadership starts in three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Benjamin, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Before we dive into the conversation with my guest today, I want to remind you to be sure and stick around to the end of the episode. I'll be doing a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's conversation for you and wrapping up everything with a concise summary. I'm really excited about the content we're sharing with you today, so let's get this conversation started. I have a stellar guest for you today. Dr. Jen Harrison is a highly experienced dissertation coach. A PhD herself, she has coached and supervised first-generation ESL and non-traditional students in both the UK and the United States for more than 10 years. Many of them have achieved first-class degrees. Dr. Harrison offers support in writing, research design, motivation, and research methods. She specializes in helping you achieve your dissertation and career goals quickly and easily so you can feel confident and supported moving forward. It is so great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I am so intrigued about your your background in academia and uh, the leadership concepts and things that must come up in what you deal with. Is there anything that you would like to uh, expound on in terms of where you come from and, and your professional career and experience that you think would help kind of set the stage for our conversation today? Sure. So um, I've been in academia for what feels like a really long time. You know, I did my degrees in the UK. I taught in colleges in the UK. I was a faculty member and a published researcher. I trained as a secondary school teacher. When I came to the US, I went back into being a professor at my local state college. So I've been a faculty member one way or another or a teacher for a long time. And now that I'm a dissertation coach and I run a business as a dissertation coach, um, and I see firsthand the struggles that students are having in their departments. And, you know, sometimes I get faculty members that work with me on their projects and I see the struggles that they are having with their leadership teams. And I'm able to compare that to the struggles that I had with my leadership teams when I worked in academia. Um, So I have this kind of dual perspective on what leadership in academia looks like, whether that is a supervisor leading a student or a department administrator or an institution administrator leading faculty teams, um, I kind of see where things start to come apart at the seams and why we get these issues that we're seeing since 2020 of academic burnout and complaints about toxic academic culture. So that's kind of what prompted me to get in touch with you and um, offer to be a guest on your show. I am absolutely thrilled to be having this conversation with you because you absolutely, of course, know, as do I and many of our other listeners, that They've had the same experience where the majority of people in the professional workforce in corporate America and things like this have gone through some kind of structured formal education. A lot of times uh, undergraduate, graduate, postgraduate degree paths to achieve credentials required for their jobs and their careers um, and to to provide them a certain measure of of competitiveness in today's market. A lot of the first tastes, the first glimpses of 
what they come to understand is the status quo for leadership is in academia. And that is where they kind of cut their teeth on it. And they're like, oh, well, this must be what right looks like. This yeah. must be what I can expect moving forward into the marketplace. And as you mentioned, there seems to be kind of a pushback against what some people have argued is toxic elements in certain segments of academia. And that is framing all of these students that are soon to become professional additions to the workplace. So I'm curious, as you've gone through all of this experience and everything, how has your your mindset around leadership and your perspective, the lens that you view leadership through, how has it evolved from when you were a student to where you are now as, as an educator, as a professional coach with your own company and things like this? I'm fascinated to hear what that evolution looked like. Sure. You know, I got really lucky when I was doing my... Um my degrees in that I had a supervisor who was an amazing leader. Um, and he was an amazing leader as a, a teacher and a guide to me, but also as a, like a leader within our department and somebody who guided the rest of the faculty. He was very good at providing people with tools and helping them to grow independently. So he's very much a facilitator type of leader. And so that was my first experience of leadership. And that was what I took through the rest of my career, thinking this is what a good leader needs to be, because it was so successful with, you know, everything he touched really. And, you know, I did work in the business world as well for a brief period. Um, and again, I got really lucky. I worked with great teams. That might be because, you know, I was one of those people that like, if the team wasn't great, I would leave. And so inevitably the jobs that I was in for any length of time had great teams and great leaders. And again, like I saw that these people were facilitators. They were there to help you grow and do your job in the best way that you could. But it, you know, wherever it didn't work out, it was always where it was ego and, you know, they were the boss and you had to do as they said, like those were the leaders I saw that just didn't match up to this ideal that I had first experienced. So I've come into the job I do now with like a very definite idea of what makes a good leader. And it, it really is about like helping a person be the best person and team member that they can be. And what I see now is um, a, a huge number of the students that I work with are actually professionals. They're in the business world and they are going back to academia because they want to assume some sort of leadership position. Either they want to kind of get into a higher leadership position or they want to move into leadership and they're not yet there. And so, first of all, they have this sense that um, this is what they saw in academia and this is what they saw in the business world. And those two seem a million poles apart. And that is something I see in academia as well, that this, this attitude of this is academia. This is not, you know, the real world. This is not the business world. Um, this isn't corporate America. This is academia. It's some, you know, big ivory tower, two different things, you know, you shouldn't be comparing. But of course, these students are comparing because they know what they're used to from their teams and their um, roles and their um, experiences outside of academia. And then they get back into academia trying to learn and grow in their own positions and find that the mentality and the um, the culture that they're seeing are this this whole other thing. And I don't know if you want me to like segue now into talking about this toxic culture that's suddenly become a buzzword. Please do. I'd, I'd love to hear about that. And I'd also love to hear if, if you could touch on it, what you've seen as the most common disparity that, that students have expressed. It's like, you know, the night and day difference. Like this is the biggest thing that they're having this disconnect between their marketplace leadership experiences and then the experiences that they've had in the, the academic realm. Oh, definitely. So I think the biggest difference is that what they are used to seeing in their professional roles is a lot of respect 
for whatever talents that they have brought. And that makes sense because you think somebody's hired into a role based on those talents and based on those skills and what they bring. So there's that automatic appreciation right from the beginning. I think they miss that in academia. They always end up finding themselves um, with imposter syndrome. You know, that's the easiest way to put it. Like they, they feel like they don't belong there. They're not made to feel you're here because you belong here. They're made to feel, you know, we've let you in, but you got to prove that you belong here and you're not doing a great job. Like that, that's the sense I get from the overwhelming majority of students that I see moving from like a business space into an academic space. Do you feel um, like, do you feel like that being in that culture for the length of time that they are to, to achieve their academic goals, do you think that shades and colors their view moving back into their professional positions to where maybe they adopt some of that as, I mean, as they go into their teams? I see how it wouldn't. I mean, but which way it impacts them is harder to say because I don't necessarily see them once they've moved back out of the academic space. Um, but, you know, it's hard. it's hard to see how they couldn't take away that experience of being made to feel on the wrong foot for however many years. And and whether that means that they then go back with this determination to never allow their teams to feel that way themselves or whether they go back like having been crushed by it and feeling like they've got to prove themselves as leaders all the time, that that I couldn't tell you. You know, you need to follow up with a guest who <laughs> works with them at the next stage. But um, it's certainly what I see is that what they're bringing into the workplace in that time when they are in academia is burnout, insecurity, um, mental health issues, lack of confidence. So all of these things that are impacting their degrees and also impacting their professional life. You know, I've had them question, should I even be trying to be a leader? Um, you know, should I even be trying for that promotion that is making me do this in the first place? I'm not good enough. Why am I here? How can I lead anybody else when I don't even know what I'm doing? So they're already dealing with all of these symptoms of stress and anxiety and burnout and, and overwhelm coming out of that professional environment, coming out of where they are into the academic realm. And then as you mentioned just a second ago, they have to struggle sometimes with toxic environments in academia as well. What what does that look like? I'm fascinated to hear kind of an insider's perspective on, on what we've seen there. Um, yeah, so if anybody kind of wants to find out more about what this looks like, a good place to look is on Twitter because you know there have been a, a whole lot of very angry discussions on Twitter. And I think the hashtag academic Twitter is probably the best one to start with. This really started becoming public, I think, around 2020 when so many other things started becoming very public. Um, but a lot more students started coming forward and talking about their experiences. There were higher expectations for you know, how faculty should be behaving, how students should be behaving. So a lot of things became much more vocalized then. And um, what we see is it's really multifaceted. So we have issues with overworked professors who just have too much on their plate. They're um, being asked to work unreasonable hours. They are burning out. You know, they're you know failing to support their students well enough. We have issues with um, racism and sexism directed towards students. We have issues with exploitation of adjuncts. We have issues with exploitation of graduate students. Um, we have issues with competition within the academic space so that instead of people working as teams, everybody feels like they're being compared to each other. And, you know, there are elites and there are hierarchies within the academic world. Um, we have issues with inequality so uh, and lack of transparency so that people don't know what they need to do to get promoted or to rise into a, a leadership position. So it's kind of very multifaceted, but really what it boils down to is people are not feeling valued um, and they are feeling exploited, whether they are students or faculty members or administrators even. 
Absolutely. I'm a huge history nerd. I actually minored in history uh, when I was in school. My, my main degree is I have a bachelor's of science in leadership. In my newest book that I wrote, one of the first chapters in there is this very brief overview of like the last 200 years of workplace history. And one of the things that I, that I saw um, over several months of study and research when I was preparing to write that chapter is that a lot of the issues that you're describing in academia track right along with what I saw in the research that coming out of the industrial revolution age, there was this very toxic leadership culture and this very toxic paradigm and perspective of exploitation, domination, almost a, a dictatorial lens that they viewed the less than worthy workers through. And as we went through, you know, another industrial revolution um, here within the last 50, 60 years, and you had robots and, and mechanical machinery and computer technology and IT and stuff like that really replace a lot of the senior leaders and department heads inside these industrial manufacturing companies. They all of a sudden were looking for work and many of them gravitated to academia and brought those brought those status quo concepts of the exploitation of the the inequality with them from the industrial revolution professional arena. That is really interesting. Um, and it's interesting what you say as well about that kind of role of technology in sort of shifting the, the leadership problems around. Um, because I think we saw something similar in 2020 when everything suddenly became virtual and automated and, you know, suddenly AI was being used that much more and virtual platforms being used that much more. And I think that is part of the reason we're seeing a shift now in the way people view these cultures in academia um, is because there is now that sense of risk that, you know, why do we need a full professor when, you know, an adjunct can teach it remotely from three states away? So that as that elitism is being more threatened, I think it's it's becoming a little bit more virile. I have a, a kind of a, I don't want to say a hot take, but kind of my own my own perspective, my own opinion on something that this whole pandemic really kind of amplified for people and really brought to the forefront of their attention and the conversations. And I'd love to hear your take on it, whether or not you agree with me, like feel free to disagree, but I'd love to hear what your take on it is. One of the things I think that that the pandemic and everything really emphasized for people is how essential connection and collaboration are, whether it's in person or whether it's virtual, people all of a sudden realized that they didn't just want to show up and do a job. They wanted to be connected to people. They wanted to be connected to the work they were doing. They wanted to have meaning and they wanted an opportunity to really collaborate with people. I think kind of as evidence to support this, this idea, this concept that I have, I think that's why coming out of the beginnings of the pandemic, you saw the great resignation and you're seeing stuff like quiet quitting where people just, just disengaging because they're not being provided an opportunity. They're not being provided an environment for real, genuine, authentic, transparent connection and collaboration. I could not agree more with that. Yeah, I think that is that is very true. Um, although I think there's maybe like two sides to that, which is that that is what most people wanted. And then there were those people that just dug their heels in and like firmly resisted. Like, no, my I cannot provide this in my organization. This is not a thing I can support. So I think like there was that that kind of real clash between what the majority of people were wanting and what was necessarily being provided. So here's my question then is like, how do we reconcile that? How do we balance between organizational structure? And obviously there's certain KPIs and metrics and goals that we have to achieve, you know, in, in your experience and what you've seen, how would you, how would you 
recommend people balancing that that need for connection, that need for collaboration, that need for, you know, really humanity to be forefront at the at the conversations in the workplace, you know, because a lot of times these conversations start in academia and people carry those concepts, those ideas forward with them into the professional arena. Oh, definitely. And, you know, this is something I keep seeing in recent dissertations as well, is that students are very interested in researching these topics and saying this discussion needs to start in the academic space. We have all the theory, we have all the research, we have the facts we need. Why are, we, why are they being generated? in the space that does not take any account of them and does not use them in any way. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think the students agree with that as well. I, When I look at the academic space, I kind of see this pivot point, which is like the department leader or the program leader who kind of acts as like this fulcrum between the institutions, the system, like the systems that are in place and the actual people who are doing the work. And I think when we need change to happen, that is the point at which it needs to change. And I've been on several podcasts in the last month talking about um, wellness and burnout and you know how we can support students and faculty better. And the thing that keeps coming up at the end of each of these podcasts is this idea of um, there is this toxic culture, but let's change it. Like, let's start the change now. Let's, let's actually do the things that are going to make this culture different for the next generation of academics that move into that, into or out of that space. I think it needs to start with um, a change in the mindset of the people who are leading departments, who are leading programs, who are designing the systems, who are implementing the changes so that eventually that systemic change can happen. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it always comes back to mindset, you know, because what we think is what will happen. You know, our imagination creates our reality. Um, yeah. Our paradigm determines our future, you know, put it on whatever kind of bumper sticker you want, but you're absolutely spot on with that. I'd love to hear your perspective on what specifically for like for leaders who are listening to this podcast. And and that really is, it kind of gets down to part of why this podcast exists to begin with is to spark these conversations, but then to get down to the granular, like the brass tacks and say, okay, yes, this needs to change, but specifically what, what do we mindset do? shifts? Yeah. What, how do we, how do we actually do something with this? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I want to come back to what you said about collaboration. So that's the mindset change that needs to happen. You need to start seeing, and I'm directing this specifically at leaders within the academic space, whatever leadership role it is you hold within the academic space. At the moment, the academic culture is very much one of um, competition. It's not one of collaboration and it needs to be one of collaboration. So as you start to think about how you are leading your students or how you are leading your faculty members, start seeing them as a team, stop seeing them as competition. Um, let go of this idea that you have to be the best researcher, that you have to have the shiniest research, the most grants, um, and start thinking about how you can pull that next generation up. So like I have a list of one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points and the, I would say these are the starting places for if you are a leader in academia and you want to be supporting your team. Um, the first one is be really clear about guidelines, expectations, career path, goals. They need to be crystal clear in writing and they need to be discussed frequently because 
often those don't exist in academic institutions. There are some vague ideas about how that should work in academia as a whole. There are some vague ideas about how they might work in your institution. And there's probably some conflicting ideas about how they work in your department. And then those clash with individual expectations and career goals as well. That's just the space that academia is. But with each of your faculty members, with each of your team members, they need to know like what is their role and what is their path forward within this space. So you as a leader need to have those conversations with your team, both you know in, individual one-to-one conversations and group conversations. What does progress and success look like in our department? And that needs to be a group decision. That shouldn't be from top down. Um, so that's the first thing, like be really clear, crystal clear and discussed frequently so that if there are misunderstandings, they can be revealed and thrashed out. And keeping and, that keeping that vision, those objectives in the front so that the main thing stays the main thing. Yeah. And so that people don't get sucked into this. I've got to be the best mindset because that's there. That's there in the back of the culture. You know, it, it's it's been there for a really long time, probably since the 1800s. So there's a lot of work to be undone there. People but, building their own little tiny kingdoms within the organization instead exactly. of trying to benefit the organization and the student the population student. it serves as a yes. whole. Yes. You know, we all know what the objectives of universities and other um, teaching institutions are right now. They want to improve recruitment and they want to improve retention. They want more students coming in and staying in and getting their degrees. Uh, but that gets lost sight of when it comes to the day-to-day of I've got to publish, I've got to go to a conference, I need to make sure I'm meeting my service hours, my portfolio is due, I'm going to be up for review soon. The student gets lost in all of that. Um, so, you know, connect up the endpoints. Where do your faculty want to be? And how does that meet the needs of the students? And how can you bring those things together and have those conversations about how individual goals are going to match up to institutional goals and what that success will look like in your department? So that's kind of tip number one. Um, tip number two, lead by example when it comes to well-being. So this is so hard in academia. It's, you're in a service industry and you go into that service industry because you are passionate about what you are doing. You want to be helping those students. It's a bit like if you're a doctor or a nurse, you are there saving lives. You know, It's important work, which means it's really, really hard to put it on the back burner every once in a while and prioritize your own wellness. Now, we all know logically that we won't do our best work in our jobs if we are not looking after ourselves as well, but it's really hard not to feel that guilt, especially when people keep asking, you know, students are dropping in, I, I urgently need your help with this. Faculty members want you to be on service committees. Yeah, can you please, you know, be at this event and can you teach this extra class? And so the demands will keep coming. Yep. Again, there is that competition element to academic culture. You've always got to be the best. You've got to be the one doing the most. You've got to be publicly seen to be fulfilling the needs of the institution. Well, and imagine too, with the, the structured schedule in academia as well, there's always hard stop deadlines. And a lot of times you've got so many things going on that I would assume that people are like, well, I don't have time to take care of myself right now. So I'll do, I'll do some self-care after this after, deadline yes, and, that and after then after this deadline comes. and it keeps getting pushed further and further into the future. Yeah. Until burnout happens. Um, and it's hard when you are in that leadership role because you've been seen to excel at going above and beyond to say, actually what I need to model is not going above and beyond necessarily. It's stopping and pausing and doing the job well which includes taking care of myself. But I think as a leader, if you want to improve the morale, if you want to improve the sense of uh, t- 
team solidarity, if you want to improve the general kind of happiness and contentment of your faculty, then you need to set the example that breaks are a normal thing in our department. Private time is a normal thing in our department. Um, caring for each other is a normal thing in our department. And that's what we do. Because if you lead by example with that, then it becomes more normalized for everybody else working with you. So taking that time to ask how somebody's doing or, you know, just something as simple as um, I'm going to make this request of you. Is this going to stress you out? Shall I just not make this request? You know, rather than a demand or an expectation that something can be done, extra things can be added to somebody's plate. Um, you know, And holding space and, and, and in essence, leading change within the culture to where it's okay to yes. pause. It's okay to reflect and, and, and practice, you know, many of the multiple different self-care and, and wellness yes. techniques that are available out there. And again, it can be hard because that expectation doesn't necessarily come from these leaders. It comes from higher up. Um, but I think once leaders start demanding it from their leaders, you know, let's have a trickle up situation rather Absolutely. than a trickle down one. You know, let's let's have more than just the people at the bottom saying we need this stuff. Um, next one is uh, recognize that the job isn't everything. And I think that kind of goes with the wellness. Um that can sometimes come when your team is almost a little bit too tight knit, that it, it can be really hard to recognize that somebody needs um, time off to do something with their kids or with the, you know, their carers and they need space outside of the workplace. And again, the, this kind of job, like it gets under your skin and it takes over your personal space, but, you know, remembering the job isn't everything. So I'm thinking back to, you know, there's this one conversation I had at one point in my career where, um, you know, I had just lost a baby. And I had a leader tell me that taking time for mourning for that was um, not prioritizing my career. And naturally, my response to that was, okay, find yourself somebody else. Goodbye. It was lovely knowing you. Um, Absolutely. You know, that kind of, I think that there is still that um, mentality in a lot of academic and teaching spaces that, you know, your job has to be everything to you because it is the kind of job that you have to be passionate about. You, you can only be passionate about that job. Instead of doing that, make space for your team members to have their lives and celebrate their lives outside of the job. And they will come back to the job refreshed and more passionate about it. I've seen that in the professional spaces as well. I mean, people get into different vocations because they're passionate about the work and it's so fulfilling that they're like, man, if I just worked 80 hours instead of 40 or 60 it would be even more fulfilling. Yes. And then there's the diminishing returns. And then they realize that they're that they're not realizing the fulfillment from those other areas of life that you talked about and really, really finding that sustainable balance. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And then also that that real guilt. Like I'm doing this really fulfilling work and I'm doing it all the time. So why am I still unhappy? Why am I feeling so stressed? Why am I burnt out? Why have I stopped caring? Um, yeah. So I think, again, that guidance needs to come from leaders that that isn't a healthy perspective and a healthy way to be. And, you know, that might come from things like implementing training programs or making it a part of your weekly or monthly departmental meeting, um, making it a policy to approve days off that don't necessarily fit within the minimum amount allowed by the institution. So, you know, there are many different things that could look like, but it starts with that recognition that the job should not be everything. And that is not a healthy thing to happen. I spent a little over eight years in the uh, the U.S. Army. And one of the things that we did, um, and this was the entirety of, of my military career, is that they would have resilience training 
every single month, mm-hmm. a minimum of one hour of resilience training every single month where everybody get together and there'd be some kind of focused training, rotating different topics and things like this to promote resilience and wellness. And then there was a, it, there was a resilience stand down day to where they would take an entire, they would take an entire half a day, an entire four hour block once a quarter and have this big thing. And, and they would have it all scheduled out and have activities and stuff like this with additional training bring in experts and guests. Um, and then once a year, there was an entire, there was an entire day that they took to really emphasize this, to really prioritize it. So that is one of the things the U.S. Army did really well is understanding the impacts of a lot of people are drawn. It's a completely volunteer military force. People signed up. They weren't forced to do anything because mm-hmm. they wanted to be there. They wanted to serve and realizing that the, the draw to service and a lot of the demands in terms of time and energy and sacrifice placed on service members can lead to that burnout that you were talking about and those feelings of guilt, like, man, like this was supposed to be so fulfilling and now I'm starting to hate my job and hate the uniform, things like this. Well, it's not that, it's that you just, you need to recalibrate your mind. You need to, to practice some resiliency and some, some wellness, some self-care techniques like you were talking about. So I've seen this in multiple other arenas as well. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to go back to something that you kind of brought up before we started recording, which was that it can be really hard to move from something like those workshop days or um, training programs that people do. And then like, but how is this actually going to work in real life? Um, I think if you're the leader and you're trying to help your team with something like wellness and burnout, that when you have these sessions and these meetings, like it's really important to lead a conversation that brings it to the practicalities of your actual team's actual lives and experiences. So there's a concept in your training video. Um, Maybe they've said, oh, you you need to make more space for your own life. You need to sit down and have that conversation now with your team members. Okay, Professor Smith, you know, where are you feeling barriers to having your own life outside of our department? Where can we help you with that? What do you need from us? Because otherwise that change doesn't happen. Like you said, the book ends up on the shelf, the training packet ends up in the bottom of a filing cabinet somewhere and nobody does anything with it. Like it, it really needs to be specific and no training program can offer that. It's no good looking for the next best training program because no training program knows your team and knows your space the way you do. Like it, that's, that's the bit where you come in as a leader and you bring your expertise and your personality and you show your team, okay, here's how this can work for us. Um, all right, I got I got one more. <laughs> um, recognize many different forms of achievement and celebrate them all. So people come into academia for so many different reasons, but I think the only real recognition that comes in academia at the minute is number of publications, you know, number of conferences visited. What is your rank? Are you associate professor, professor emeritus, professor? You know, so really it only celebrates one aspect of what makes you a great team member. But I think there's a lot more that needs to be celebrated and that making the the mindset shift to recognize those different skills and achievements and then normalizing that these are valuable things within a department, um, I think that can make a real big difference for the students and for the faculty members. So, um, recognizing when somebody is just always the person who is available, recognizing that person who, you know, may not have the most publications, but they are an amazing teacher and they work really well with students. Um, Recognizing the person that just has that bubbly personality that lightens up the whole room. You know, all of these are kind of soft achievements that don't necessarily get recognized, but they build teams and they build community. Absolutely. This, uh, this, this list of stuff that you gave us is absolute gold. 
Um, I know you said you prefaced it by saying it's it's advice and, and application for leaders in academia. I would take that list and replace the title with leader with advice for good leaders. And because it's all, it's all perfectly applicable and parallels all of the different interest industries that I can think of right off the top of my head, um, the different leaders and stuff that I've worked with across multiple different industries in volunteer sector and, and in the um, government sectors and for-profit entrepreneurship and things like this, all of these, these things that you've, you've, hit on are absolutely applicable. They absolutely translate over into a professional setting. And that if leaders actually made note of this and then actually sat down and didn't just be like, oh yeah, those are good ideas. Yes. Do something with them. Invest the time, invest the bandwidth into your team and the results will be astounding. Yes. And I'm going to add to that as well, though, like don't come up with your master plan for how are you going to change your team and change your um your institution and your systems and then present it, ask your team, you know, here's the idea. Here's how I think it could work. But do you guys think this will work? Will this work for us? Um, because often there's a lot of resistance to a hard change. I completely agree. And I mean, I think that really comes back to our, our base survival instincts. Change is different. Change is scary. Change can kill you, you know, stay inside the cave. You don't know what's out there, the, the change, the unknown and stuff that comes back to those instinctive survival techniques. So, which is why so many people are resistant to change. I, I completely agree with you that the most effective type of leadership is collaborative leadership is by having that, that feedback loop and by having those open, candid, authentic conversations with people to where you as a leader aren't saying, this is the way it's going to be, fall in line or get out. It's hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm thinking it. Here's how I think it would be good for us as a group, as a team, as an organization. What are your thoughts? You know, Because everybody has different perspectives. They have different experiences. They have different lenses that they view things through. And sometimes, I say sometimes, often your team members may see things in a way that you haven't, and they may have a perspective that provides more context and, and, and more of a frame of reference to the situation and actually lead to a better idea. One of the ideas we have to get out of as a leader is we don't always have to have the best idea. We don't always have to be right. You yeah. know? And um, I think there is also often, you know, when you, you come into a space as a leader and you say, you know, I can see this problem and here's a solution that I think we should try. And you'll often get met with this barrage of that won't work for these reasons. And what I usually see happen there is just frustration, like, okay, fine, well, we'll just leave it the way it is then, because that seems to be how you guys like it. Um, but obviously, uh, yes. that, <laughs> that people, response is really natural. People who have a problem for every solution. Exactly. Um, but, you know, sometimes they see those problems because they're working the front line, whereas you're a step back, or they're seeing those problems because it's their day-to-day -day and it's not necessarily yours. So it is important to kind of stop and look past the negativity into like why that you're seeing that resistance um, and invite those explanations and alternatives in. It's uh, It reminds me a lot of times I spent uh, 15 years in the construction industry before I joined uh, the U.S. Army. And uh, a lot of times you would run into things to where architects would draw out plans for things. Um, 
and and they would plan out these these complex designs and things like that because you know prior to the military and stuff I was a uh, I was a master carpenter that was my my professional skill set and they would want you to create these amazing millwork structures with cabinetry and and woodworking and and carpentry and all this stuff it looks great on the architectural prints but they failed to take into account the fact that on the prints there's there's certain dimensions in their drawings and sometimes with with oversight from the architects, that's not the actual dimensions of the wood or the <laughs> materials in real life. Yeah. And they're like, I don't see what the problem is. Like, why can't you get this piece of furniture? Why can't you get this cabinet? Why can't you get this door in here? It's like, well, you see in the real world, um, we can't just click and make it appear. We actually have to fit it in from an angle and, and move it into place. And the way you've designed this, there's, there's physically, you know, the laws of physics prevent us from being able to put this in there. Yes. And then they would have to yeah. go back and redesign yeah. things, you know? So again, it comes back to that, the conceptual piece, it's important to talk to your team because they are a lot of times the boots on the ground, they work with the real things and they'd be able to tell you, well, that's a good idea, but it wouldn't work the way that you're suggesting because of X, Y, Z. If we did it this way instead, then it could work and get us to the same desired end state that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's like the, the system. And again, that's why I say the leaders are the pivot points because the system, the institution is the, the concept, the blueprint, but the people are the twisty wood that refuses to be quite straight in its grain and fit into the space that you have for it. Um, and, you know, you, you've got to work around those and that's kind of where your skill set comes in. So, you know, taking it back to those amazing leaders that were my first experience, they were facilitators. They didn't look for how they could change things. They looked for how you could change things and how they could help you get there. Absolutely. In, uh, in your experience, with both good leadership, which I'm so I'm so thankful and, and and so grateful that you've had an opportunity to experience great leadership, as have I. I've had good leaders, but I've also had toxic leaders, as it sounds like you've also worked with some toxic leadership as well. What what are a couple of the big lessons that you've learned over the course of your career, either through making mistakes and figuring out how to do it right, or having the right answers modeled for you and just and and taking that modeling and carrying it forward in your life? You know, what are a couple of the really big leadership lessons, and then hopefully the practical applicability to go with them that you could pass on to leaders who are listening to this podcast? I think I've got just one. Like, I think it all boils down to the same thing. Like I, I could break it down into multiple, but I think what it really comes down to is people matter. Um, and that applies across the board. So in terms of practicalities, wherever you have the opportunity to make people matter, you should do that. Whether that is prioritizing their wellness or setting up um, opportunities for mentorship and support to connect people with other people who can help them, or whether that is, um, you know, listening actively to people to hear what they need. It, it really all comes down to putting people first. If you're putting anything other than your people first, then you're not doing it right. It almost seems counterintuitive, especially coming out of this industrial revolution perspective on leadership, where they prioritized revenue and profits and the processes that made their big industrial machines chug along. Yes. It's it's almost counterintuitive, but when you actually put people first, then the the evidence doesn't lie. They've done studies on this. And on average, as an organization, when you start prioritizing your people first, genuinely putting people first in the organization, not just putting on a poster that, hey, people are our greatest asset. No, they're not. You're just saying that. You're still considering them a serialized component, something that you can leverage for corporate gain. Yes. When you genuinely put people first, the statistics tell us that most companies see a 25 to 40% increase in revenue and profitability 
and a 30 to 40% increase in productivity, as well as a 20 to 30% reduction in personnel churn and turnover. Yeah. And I think there's often, again, like you say, coming out of the industrial revolution, there has been this attitude of a person is replaceable. Like it doesn't matter if they're your top salesperson, your most amazing leader, your most distinguished professor, like another one will come along. So it doesn't matter how we treat this one, but that's not actually true. Like every person is completely individual and brings unique skills. And if that, you know, you nurture that, you're going to get something good out of it. So, you know, people matter. (laughs) Don't treat them as disposable. That is such a good point. Such a good point. I mean, that is one of my soapboxes I get wound up on. Um, in terms of implementation, one of the things that I talk to leaders about also is shift your mindset. There, there's a, a piece of our, our brain, uh, the reticular activating system at the, the base of our brain, RAS. And it's it's one of those things like when you start thinking about buying a certain car, all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere. You're like, oh, you know, I'd really like a, a you know, a, a little black dress to go out on this this outing or whatever. And all of a sudden you start seeing ladies everywhere with little black dresses. It's It's that yeah. kind of thing. Well, translating over to leadership, if you're looking for problems, you're always going to find them. Problems will always be there. And then all of a sudden that'll be all you see because that's what you've programmed into your RAS to filter out because it filters out millions of stimuli every day that never get raised to your higher brain for processing and addressing. That's how you're able to, to function throughout the day with all these millions of stimuli. Well, the mindset shift that I recommend to leaders is start looking for opportunities to catch your people doing the right thing. Mm. Start looking for for chances to say, okay, what are activities and behaviors that really exemplify, that really line up with the mission, the vision, the purpose, the core values of our organization? And let me catch somebody doing that and celebrate that, you know, in, in whatever way they feel appreciated. Like some people... They prefer to be celebrated with a pat on the back and a handshake, just you and them. Like that means more to them than really putting them on blast and, and celebrating them in front of a group, you know, in a, in a team sync meeting or a faculty meeting or sending out a company-wide email like, oh man, this person did this thing. It was so amazing. Some people like that. Some people don't. So again, it comes back to people matter and understanding what's important to them. Having those conversations and those connections yeah. and having that 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 genuine care for who they are as a person and what makes them tick. Indeed, could not agree more. So as we're wrapping up today's podcast, I would love to hear for the people who are fascinated with your perspective and the things that you're doing and would love to learn more about you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure, so um, the best best way to get in touch with me is to visit my website, which is www.readwriteperfect.com. And um, that will tell you about all the coaching services that I offer. But more importantly, you can book a free 30-minute call with me and we can talk about whatever it is you need support with. And then also, I do have an offer for your listeners, which is that if they are actually going into academia and going to be working on an academic project of some sort, and they think they might like some coaching, um, if they mention this podcast when they contact me, they can actually have a free hour-long coaching session. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. No problem. That was awesome. And for our listeners, of course, the links to that stuff will be in the full show notes. So be sure and grab the link to that and download those full show notes from the episode description. It has been such a thrill and an honor, Dr. Harrison, to chat with you today and to chat with someone who also holds that perspective that people matter and that as leaders, we should really hold space to make sure that we keep people first. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, friends, let's revisit the key points and concepts from this episode and wrap them up 
in a nice little package for you. Great leaders are facilitators, ensuring their teams have the support, guidance, and resources needed for excellence. They actively help team members grow and achieve their professional and personal goals. On the other hand, toxic leadership manifests in demanding obedience, expecting things to get done their way, and fostering a sense of imposter syndrome among team members. This attitude can undermine loyalty and create a culture of instability and mistrust. To counteract toxic leadership, it's important to recognize the signs and be candid about your situation. Reflect on the negative aspects of your environment and work on deprogramming those elements from your leadership perspective. Be aware of the potential to carry forward negative attitudes and behaviors into new environments and take steps to minimize their influence. Changing an organization starts with a mindset shift from senior team leaders, department managers, and the system architects. Embrace collaboration and let go of the need to be the best at everything. Assemble a team of specialized A players and trust their expertise. Building a collaborative and empowering environment is crucial to avoiding toxic leadership. So three key strategies for creating a vibrant culture that prevents toxic leadership are one, be clear and articulate in setting expectations, guidelines, and growth opportunities for team members. Engage in regular individual and group conversations to discuss progress, goals, and healthy approaches to achieving objectives. Number two, lead by example in prioritizing well-being. Encourage regular breaks, a supportive culture, and a healthy lifestyle balance. Show your team that they can be both excellent and fulfilled without sacrificing their personal well-being. Number three, recognize and celebrate various forms of achievement. Understand the unique skills and experiences each team member brings and celebrate their contributions in a way that resonates with them. Involve the team in envisioning and planning positive change and ask how you can support their efforts as a facilitator leader. Ultimately, great leadership is about putting people first. Prioritize the well-being of your team members, create opportunities for mentorship and support, and actively listen to their needs. By treating everyone as valuable, you'll foster a thriving team and a successful organization. Leadership isn't about who's got the biggest brain or the flashiest credentials. I've been around the block a few times on my own leadership journey, and I can tell you it's really about creating a space where everyone can bring their A-game. You're not just a boss. You're a conductor orchestrating a symphony of talent. You remember when you used to play King of the Hill as a kid? Well, leadership isn't like that. There's no hill, there's no crown, and there's certainly no room for a bully who wants to push everyone else down. That's what we call toxic leadership. Nobody likes a bully. So don't be that guy. Be the person who lifts people up, not tears them down. Toxic leadership is that, that sneaky little beast that can creep into your team unnoticed if you're not paying attention. When it does, it chips away at the foundation of trust and morale, and that's something we can't afford. As leaders, we have to be brave enough to face this head on and kick it out the door. So the first place we need to start is by looking within. We all have our blind spots, and it's our job and our responsibility as leaders to uncover them in ourselves. This is where self-reflection and situational awareness come into play. It's about being your own coach, spotting the wrinkles, and ironing them out. It's an invaluable tool that keeps the negative vibes from reaching your team. And here's the heart of it all. It's your people. They're not just pieces on a chessboard. They're not assets in your organization. They're the heart and soul of your organization. So what's your role? It's to recognize and amplify their value. When you put your people first, you're building more than a team. You're cultivating a community, a group of individuals bound together by shared goals and mutual respect. That's what real leadership is. Leadership isn't about standing on a pedestal. It's about empowering others to reach their full potential. It's about creating a safe, productive space, tackling any negative elements, embracing self-reflection, and keeping your people at the center of it all. Because when you do, you're not just leading a team, you're nurturing a powerful community. And believe me, 
that's when the magic happens. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. If you resonate with this podcast, be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes we're going to be putting out. Also, I would personally appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other people who would enjoy this content can find it more easily. Also, if you know someone who would like this episode, be sure and share it with them and encourage them to come check out what we're doing over here. You can use the link in the episode description to connect with me on social media. And if you haven't already, go grab a copy of my newest best-selling book, The Antidote. It will absolutely transform the way you think about leadership and developing teams. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves exceptional leadership and you can be that leader. Mm-hmm.